tonight, we're getting into Daniel's 70 weeks. This is powerful. So I hope you have a Bible with you, or if you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to put the verses at least on the screen. But uh, can we just have a prayer? Father, we just thank you for your touch on the Word of God. Lord, use this message tonight to help us to understand where we are in the prophetic timetable and what we can anticipate per the yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecies of the Bible. In Jesus' name, open our eyes, Lord, and thank you for it. Amen. All righty. Now, as we begin chapter 9, we find Daniel praying, and he's confessing the sins of God's people, and he's interceding for them. Now, the context is this. He's in Babylon. He's been in Babylon since since, uh, they came and began to conquer uh, Jerusalem, that is the Babylonians, and carried prisoners off to Babylon. And Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken into Babylon along with a lot of other uh, Jewish people. And uh, it happened over quite a long period of time where more and more were taken into Babylonian captivity. Now, it's coming to the end of the Babylonian captivity when we are in um, Daniel 9. They're getting close. And we're going to see that Daniel has been reading the prophet Jeremiah. And as he's reading the prophet Jeremiah, he begins to realize, hey, our 70-year captivity, because Jeremiah said, you're going to be captive for 70 years. He said, it's about up. I'm getting a little bit of echo. Are you up there, AJ? Or Okay, just a little bit loud here. Is it too loud for y'all? A little bit. So bring it down just a little bit. If you can find AJ, he slipped off somewhere. Tell him what I said. There he is. He's running in. <laughs> he heard God talk to him out there in the foyer. Okay. So Daniel has read the prophet Jeremiah. In an interesting, one prophet read another prophet. And that's how he knew where they were. And he said, oh, oh my, the 70 years is almost up. So he decides to intercede for, for the people of God as he knows they're about to be released and to rebuild Jerusalem. Okay? So that's where we pick up in Daniel 9, verse 1. In the first year, Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through who, everybody? Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, notice that word, desolations. We're going to read it later in this message. Desolations meaning their captivity, a really hard time for Israel. They went into captivity because of their sin. Now, It's the first year of the reign of the Medes and the Persians, following the overthrow of Belshazzar in the kingdom of Babylon. You've been with us the last few weeks, then we've gone over and over again how Daniel foresaw uh, four kingdoms that would come and go, and King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, dreamed of four kingdoms that were going to come and go. And they were the Babylonians, uh, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. 
And that covers about 600 years of history. So they saw, they foresaw uh, this incredible um, prophecy of God. Only God knows how to predict the future because God is in the future and he's in the past and he's in the now. God stands outside of time and looks into time and he sees the beginning of history and the end of history all at once. And I know that's hard for us to comprehend. We don't have to comprehend it. We just have to accept it. Amen. And so Daniel, knowing that, wow, uh, we're, we're about to um, be released to go rebuild Jerusalem, which has laid, been laid waste for 70 years. And so he begins to pray. No matter who is in power, he begins to pray because he has watched the Babylonian kingdom overthrown, and now he is there for the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. So God has allowed him to live through two kingdoms. Amen? Now, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the head of gold, being Babylon, being replaced with the chest and the arms of silver, remember the big statue, the Medo-Persian empires, the chest and the arms of silver. And then Daniel's dream of the great beast that looked like a lion, Babylon, and of the bear with three ribs in its mouth, that again is the Medes and the Persians, have both been fulfilled. And so now Daniel knows we're about to be released after this long captivity. You got to remember some of the children of Judah have been born in Babylon. They didn't even know what Jerusalem looked like. And many of the people taken captive had died of old age now. But Daniel had lived. Now, he says, I'm going to pray for my people. This is a pivotal moment. And so he says in verse 3, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, notice the phrase, set my face. I love this phrase. He said, I set my face toward the Lord God. Now, when you hear that phrase in the Bible, it means complete resolve to seek God. I'm going to seek God no matter what. I have set my face. Isaiah puts it like this. I set my face like a flint. And he prophesied of Messiah Jesus that that's the way Jesus uh, would be uh, making his march toward Jerusalem, setting my face like a flint towards Jerusalem to do the will of God and die for the sins of the people. How many of you can say, we need to set our face to seek God like flint? Set our face to seek God. Nothing is going to distract him. Now, let's read the account. And I want to point out some of the key ingredients to genuine intercessory prayer found here. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession. And I said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. How does he talk to God? He says, you are a great and you are an awesome God. He begins by praising God. And that's the way all prayer ought to begin. That's the way Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's a statement of praise. So he begins his intercessory prayer by praising God. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. And then verse 5, he says, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. I ask you, church, is he blaming anybody else for their sin? Is he he in the blame game here? No. He's saying, we sinned. We committed iniquity. While Daniel is one of only a couple of men in the whole Bible 
of whom not one sin is listed. Yet he's identifying with his people who have grievously sinned. And he's saying, we have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We departed from your word. He confesses the sins of Israel. And their primary sin was we left the word of God. I could linger there, but you know and I know how America has forsaken the word of God. And that's a sin. Verse six, neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. Not only, the, not only had they forsaken God's word, but they had turned a deaf ear to God's warnings through his prophets. It's a very dangerous thing if God comes to you with a warning and you don't listen. Amen? We need to listen to the warnings of God. So he goes on. Verse seven, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off, and all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you, O Lord, to us belongs, everybody say it with me, shame of face. To our kings, our princes, our fathers. He's saying we have all sinned against you. From top to bottom, we've all sinned against you. Now this is at the end of their captivity. And notice he's saying we've been here for 70 years because of our sin. And so he's owning up to it. And he's fessing up to what they've all done. No excuse making, no passing the buck. They were guilty before God. Daniel owns it. His confession continues. Verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Though we have rebelled against him, that is God, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets, Moses and so on. Yes, and all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Now, what he's doing now, he's confessing sin, but what is he appealing to? He's appealing to the mercy of God. To you, God, belong mercy and forgiveness. We don't deserve it, but I'm asking you for it. Amen? So he appeals to God's mercy. We are guilty as charged, Lord, but please have mercy on us. And that's what I feel about America, about my own country. What about you? We're guilty as charged. I'm going to tell you, America right now would make Sodom blush. I'm telling you. I read my Bible. I know what Sodom did. We're past where Sodom was. And so let's go on. In the next few verses, Daniel recognizes that God's judgment has fallen on them. He recognizes we've been under judgment. Verse 11 Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, uh, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. Who brought disaster on Israel? God. Why did God do it? Because of their sin. Has God changed? No. Now let's go on. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. 
They'd lost everything. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. In other words, after 70 years, they still haven't really repented as a nation. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, verse 15, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. Daniel is saying, we deserve your judgment, but I'm asking you for mercy and forgiveness and, and, and notice how Daniel believed that prayer, catch this everybody, he believed that prayer could change the fate of his nation. He believed that. Because here he is at the end of the captivity and he's praying and he's asking God for mercy and he's believing the prayer of one man and, and, and it was true. One man's prayer could touch a nation. Is that true today? What about a whole church? What about a church praying in the name of God's only begotten son? Could God touch a nation? Come on, church, can God touch a nation? Yes. He next once more boldly appeals to God's mercy. Verse 16, oh Lord, according to all your righteousness, righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to everybody around us. Listen, you lose your dignity and you lose your reputation when you sell out to sin. And Israel had once been the crowning glory of the world, and now kaput. And he's saying, now we're a reproach to everybody around us. I hate to keep saying this about America, but I want you to know, America's not respected around the world like, it, like we used to be, because we used to stand for right. We used to stand for freedom. We used to stand for what was wholesome, and, and I'm not saying America was perfect, but the Judeo-Christian ethic was etched into the character and soul of America, and, and we had the respect and, and the awe of the world. And I ask you, is it slipping away? So let's go on and finish verse 17. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant, singular, one man, hear my prayer and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine. Can we, can we pray this, everybody? Say, for the Lord's sake. Come on, everybody, say, for the Lord's sake. Cause your face to shine on your sanctuary. Isn't that a beautiful prayer, which is desolate? Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations. And the city which is called by your name, look on us, Lord, and have mercy on us, Lord. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds. Oh no, but because of your great mercies, we dare to pray is what he's saying. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Isn't that a powerful prayer? 
I mean, come on, everybody. We could pray Daniel's prayer over America. Amen. Now, here he is, and I want you to picture this with me. Use your sanctified imaginations. Here's one man. He's an old man now. Any hair he's got, it's silver. He has seen one kingdom come and go. He has survived the lion's den. He has seen his three friends survive the burning fiery oven. He has prophesied to kings and been exactly on the money. He has seen his prophecies come to pass partially in the Medes and the Persians coming and overthrowing the Babylonians. He predicted that by the Spirit of God. So now he's an old man. He knows his people are about to be released and go rebuild what they lost. And so he's praying. He's calling out to God. He has humbled himself magnificently. And now I want you to look what happens. He gets a visit from the archangel Gabriel. Not a regular angel, the archangel Gabriel. Look what it says in verse 20. Now, while I was speaking, praying and confessing, he's in the middle of praying. He's in the middle of his next sentence. And I'm praying about the sin of my people and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. Please note with me the power of prayer. Not only was Gabriel sent, he was sent swiftly. He flew swiftly. We're talking about one of only three archangels, one of them fallen, Lucifer, two left, Michael, Gabriel. The same archangel that appeared to Mary and said, you're going to have the Christ child. Gabriel always brings revelations uh, to God's praying people, while Michael was the warring archangel. Now, prayer brought a breakthrough, a powerful breakthrough. And look what he says happened, verse 22. He informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you the skill to understand. Verse 23. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, Daniel. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Can I tell all of you, because of Christ's shed blood, you are greatly beloved to God. Greatly beloved to God. But here comes Gabriel. He says, I'm about to tell you some things that are going to stagger minds until they all come to pass. I'm about to tell you the future of the Jewish people until the coming again of the Messiah to establish his millennial reign. We're about to take a trip into the future, Daniel. It's powerful. Gabriel delivers to Daniel the famous 70-week prophecy regarding Israel. One commentator said, listen to this, this is doubtless, he writes, the most significant and the most meaningful of all prophecies found in the entire Bible. Did you catch that? We're about to study, according to this commentator and a lot of others, the most significant prophecy in the whole Bible. 
This is it. It provides an understanding of the whole present, future, unfolding program, purpose, and design of God for the rest of human history. It's right here. You ready to read it? Everybody say, I'm ready. All right, let's read it. Verse 24. Gabriel says to Daniel, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. And then he lists what's going to happen during those 70 weeks. Watch this. To finish the transgression, and I'm going to tell you what these mean in a minute. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, fifth, to seal up vision and and prophecy, and sixth, to anoint the most holy. Everybody say 70 weeks. Now pay close attention. A week in this prophecy is not talking about seven 24-hour days, like we would say a week, all right? But it's seven years. Each day in the week represents one year, all right? That's the key to understanding this prophecy. So when he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people Israel, he's really saying 70 times seven years, which is 490 years, Everybody say 490. Now, I know it's been a long day and you worked all day and you kind of some of you dragged in here because you're tired, but we're going to have to put on our thinking caps right now because this prophecy requires thought. All right? So here we go. Everybody say 490 years once more. So 70 weeks times seven or 490 years are determined, Daniel, for your people, Israel. Gabriel's informing Daniel that on God's calendar, and God's got one, all of Israel's remaining history has already been decreed, and it will be accomplished within a 490-year time frame. Now, I'm going to go over the six key events that are going to happen during that 490-year time frame once again so we can get it. The first thing that's going to happen in that 490-year time frame Finish the transgression. What's it talking about? What's the transgression? That's the Jews' rejection of Messiah. All right? 490 years are determined for the Jews' rejection of Messiah to come to an end. I ask you tonight, are we there yet? No, because they're still rejecting Messiah as a people. All right? So that's yet to be fulfilled. Second, make an end of sin. Well, when, when he says uh, 490 years are determined to make an end of sin, he means when the Jews finally accept Messiah. And that's going to happen at the end of the 490 years. Third, make atonement for iniquity. We know what that is. Jesus shed blood on the cross is going to happen during that 490 years. Then, bring in everlasting righteousness. Well, when is there going to be everlasting righteousness? We've looked at that for several weeks now. Whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that'll never come to an end? Say his name to me. Jesus, right. And so uh, he's talking here about the beginning of the millennium when Christ returns in the second coming and begins to rule the earth with a rod of iron and a scepter of righteousness and it's going to be a beautiful time. Then, next Seal up the vision and prophecy. 
Now listen carefully to me. He's talking here about the fulfillment of all prophecy concerning the Messiah coming to a close. Every prophecy ever made about Jesus will be finished by the end of this 490 years and fulfilled. Don't glaze over on me now. I know you're thinking. I can see it. Isn't this good? I love this stuff. Now watch this. Let me tell you about the prophecy concerning Jesus. There's two types of messianic prophecy. One, those related to the sufferings of Christ. And the second one, those concerning the glories to come. Now the one concerning the sufferings of Christ, it's over. Fulfilled. Because he died on the cross for us. But the ones regarding the glories to come are not yet fulfilled. Hence the title of this series, Prophecies Yet to be Fulfilled. The prophecies, uh, Jesus, uh, as Jesus was humiliated in history, he's going to be glorified in history. This will occur when the Jews accept him and he returns to reign over the world from Mount Zion in Jerusalem. He's coming back and he won't be elected. He will be placed as king of kings, lord of lords, ruler of the universe forever. And the sixth thing that will happen in that 490-year time period, the 70 weeks, is anointing the most holy place. Now, I believe that's probably talking about the anointing of the millennial temple because the temple is going to be rebuilt again. All right? Now, let's move on. We note that these 490 years are divided into three sections of time. Seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week. So that's seven weeks, 49 years. Seven times seven, 49. 62 weeks times seven is 434 years. And one week is seven years. Let's read verse 25 very carefully. Gabriel says to Daniel, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem when they're released from Babylon until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. 49 weeks plus 434 weeks. All right? Or years. So let's deal first with the seven weeks, or the first 49 years. Jerusalem, says Gabriel, will be rebuilt in seven weeks. Now, they didn't rebuild in seven weeks. We know that. No way. It was totally destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The wall was destroyed. The whole city was destroyed when the Babylonians came and took them captive and destroyed the city. It was totally laid waste. But here's... Catch this, everybody. Gabriel is telling Daniel, when you're released from Babylon and the Jews return to their homeland, they're going to rebuild Jerusalem within 49 years or in 49 years. Notice, God's not afraid to set a time. And when God sets a time, you don't move the goalpost when it doesn't come to pass. You don't go, oh, well, you know, that's just not what God meant. No, when God sets a time, my friends, it's going to happen in that time. 
God doesn't fudge. God doesn't say, well, I would have done it in that time, but the devil, you know, he attacked. No, when God decrees a thing that it's going to happen in a certain time, friends, it's going to happen in that time. Okay? So, he says in seven weeks or 49 years, Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. Now, after God's people had served 70 years in Babylonian captivity, the Bible records that in the year 457 B.C., the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, issued a decree instructing officials in the province west of the Euphrates River to give Ezra and the people of God whatever they request of you in the efforts to, I'm quoting now, in the efforts to rebuild Jerusalem, reinstitute the temple and the temple services, appoint judges and magistrates, and teach the law. That's Ezra 7, 11 to 26. So Artaxerxes said, whatever you need to go rebuild Jerusalem, you've got it. You talk about favor. This was favor. So a foreign pagan king financed God's work. Yeah. Now this historical fact is recorded in the book of Ezra long before the life and times of Jesus. And it reveals this is the starting point of the 490 year countdown. When he said, you got what you need, go rebuild Jerusalem, the hourglass was turned upside down. The 490-year hourglass. And the grains of sand of, of time began to fall through. So now we're on the prophetic clock. All right? And guess what? You ready? Just as Gabriel said, we know, not just from Bible history, but from secular history, it took the Jews 49 years to restore Jerusalem from the time of their release. Not 48, not 51, not close to 49, 49, seven weeks, just like Gabriel said. Who does that? God, only God. Everybody say, wow. Awesome. A God thing. Now, what I want us to see here, when we look at how accurate God is with prophecy, then, brother, you can know the same God that did this prophesied Christ is coming back. And as it was fulfilled perfectly, as he said, Jesus will come back just like he said. Now, let me move on. Gabriel had also added, and this is just a little side note, he said the street is going to be built again, and the wall, but it will be in troublesome times. Well, we know what happened next. We read in the book of uh, Nehemiah that enemies rose up against the Jews as they began to rebuild. And Sambalat, two, two men, Sambalat and Tobiah, uh, began to attack in every way they could to try to shut down the work of God. And they caused all kinds of trouble. I mean, they had to keep pressing through. They finally ended up with a sword in one hand and a building tool in the other. They were fighting with one hand and building with the other. The warfare was so intense to rebuild Jerusalem. And so in troublesome times, just like Gabriel said, that was the context in which they rebuilt. Now, that's seven weeks or 49 years. Everybody say 49 years. 
So we got 49 years now out of the way. Then the next set of weeks is 62. Now 62 times 7 is 434 years. Verse 25, listen carefully. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until who, everybody? Read it. Until who? Messiah, the prince. Do you see it up there? Oh, it's not up there. I'm thinking you're reading this the whole time. It's supposed to be up there. I'm disappointed officially. I don't know what to say. It's supposed to be up there because this is the toughest night of all. Oh, well, let me, let me read it to you very slowly. From the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, that means until Messiah arrives. There will be seven weeks to restore Jerusalem and 62 weeks until the Messiah the Prince. All right? Now read the next verse carefully. Well, you can't. Let me read it for you. Oh, there it is. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. Now follow me, everybody. Seven weeks or 49 years are already used up. That's already happened to rebuild Jerusalem. But verse 26 talks about 62 more weeks or 434 years, which again multiplied the 62 weeks comes to 434 years. Now, when we add 49 years to 434 years, we get 483 years. Everybody say 483. Some of you are going, I didn't know I was going to math class tonight. But now, this, is, this matters so much. This is so powerful. Watch this now. When you add 49 years to 434 years, seven weeks and 62 weeks, you come to 483 years. Now, here's the amazing thing. When we fast forward 483 years from 457 B.C., when the prophetic countdown began and Artaxerxes told them, you can have whatever you want, go build Jerusalem, fulfillment of prophecy. So 483 years from that moment, you come to the year A.D. 27. What happened in A.D. 27? The ministry of Jesus began. Think, how do you do that? Because he said, he said right here, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shows up, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's 483 years. So all we got to do is add 483 years to the 457 B.C. when they received everything they needed to rebuild Jerusalem. You come to 27 A.D. and a man appears on a seashore and says to some fishermen, follow me. Nail it down to the year. That's why the Bible is such an amazing book. And one of the things amazing about it is it dares to prophesy. It dares to prophesy with great specificity. 
It prophesies. Not just that something is going to happen somewhere in the future, but it tells you when, how long, what will be the context. Because God stands outside of time and he sees the end of a thing before the beginning begins. So here comes Jesus. Amen. Gabriel went on to predict that Messiah would be cut off, didn't he? He said he will be cut off, but not for himself. What does that mean? He's saying Messiah is going to be killed, but he won't be killed for himself. He'll be killed for us. He'll be killed, but not because he did anything wrong. He was, he was hung on the cross in between two thieves, but he didn't do anything wrong. Even Pilate said, I find no wrong in him. He was innocent and pure as the driven snow. But he was cut off. He was killed. Daniel predicted it. And he was cut off in A.D. 31, three and a half years after his ministry began. He was cut off, but not for himself, for you for me and for the sins of the whole world, he's cut off. And when Jesus was cut off, we're at 483 years. And listen, there's still seven left. Because what was the number? 490. So when Jesus was cut off, died for you and me, 483 of Daniel's uh, 70 weeks had been fulfilled. 69 of those weeks had been fulfilled. But there's one week left. And what is, what is a week? It's seven years. So there's seven years yet to be fulfilled. Now what we need to understand, why has there been this long gap? Because here's Jesus, he dies on the cross all right, and he died for the sins of the world. He was cut off for us. He died, rose from the dead, but then you got this long gap, and there's still 70 years hanging in the future. Seven years hanging in the future, yet to be fulfilled. What about that? Where is it? What is it? Why does it tarry? Why has there been this long gap? Well, I'll tell you why. The seven years is the great tribulation time period spoken of in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is all about the final week. The book of Revelation is all about the last week. Once you get uh, past Revelations 3, when he's addressing the seven churches, when you get past Revelations 3 and you start Revelations 4, there's no more mention of the church. Why? Because we gone. right? Bad English, good preaching, right? We gone, okay? But, but from chapter 4 to chapter 22, it's all about the last week, this last seven years, okay? So we've been in what we call the church age. This is the church age, and that's why there's been such a pause, because when he was cut off, Jesus died and spilled his blood and rose from the dead. Then after that, the church was born. And for all these years now, over 2,000 years, we've been in the church age. We're between the 69th and 70th week. 
And it's a long gap. And Daniel doesn't leave us wondering. He tells us about the final uh, seven years. Daniel continues by predicting the destruction of Jerusalem as predicted also by Jesus. Because when they killed him on the cross, remember what Jesus said? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How many times I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have me. John says in John 1, he came unto his own, the Jewish people, that's the own, and his own received him not. They rejected him. So what did Jesus say? The day is coming when not one stone is going to be left upon another on the temple. It's all coming down. And Jerusalem, he predicted, is going to be trodden down by the Gentiles. Let me read it to you. Um, Let me read first what Daniel predicted. And the people of the prince who is to come. This is right after he talked about Messiah being cut off. And the people of the prince who is to come, that's the Romans. They're the ones that destroyed the city. Shall destroy the city, Daniel writes, and the sanctuary. Daniel wrote that. Centuries before Christ appeared. Daniel prophesied that by Gabriel's message. That's exactly what happened. It's it's just amazing. The end of it will be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. (laughs) So I ask you, did it happen? The city was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. Before Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, Daniel already had. And the desolations, he says, he speaks of and, and predicts, are the deaths of over a million Jews in the fall of Jerusalem. Okay? And so, and the scattering of the Jewish people to the four corners of the globe for centuries to come. That's the desolations. Jesus said this in Luke 21, 24, they, the Jewish people, will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles till the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We are in the times of the Gentiles. The gospel is going out to the whole world. And and that means all the Gentile nations. All right? So this happened just like Jesus predicted and Daniel predicted. The Romans under Titus took over Jerusalem, trampled it underfoot, and only Gentiles occupied that landmass for centuries. But the times of the Gentiles, I believe, are coming to a close. All right? This happened. Now, look at verse 27. Because now, and I know this has been a lot tonight, but let me, let me just go here, and I'll probably rehash the end of this next week. But verse 27 is about Antichrist. Then he, Antichrist, then. Everybody say then. Well, what preceded the then? Because when he says then, he's pointing back to what was just said. So what was just said? That the city would be destroyed and the Gentiles would take over. And the times of the Gentiles would have to live itself out and one day come to a close. 
What happens when the times of the Gentiles, the gospel going to the whole world, what happens when that ends? Well, the church is taken out. And look what he says. Then he, Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. How long? One week. Now, now Daniel is saying this, so we know he's talking about seven years. What is he telling us? That when the church is taken out and the times of the Gentiles are over, that's when Antichrist comes onto the scene. And he comes onto the scene in a fantastic way by successfully cutting a peace covenant, brokering a peace covenant in the Middle East. And the Jews put their trust in him. And the Arabs put their trust in him. And the world puts its trust in him. And as Paul predicted in 2 Thessalonians, God sends a strong delusion to the whole world. What is that delusion? Antichrist. And then, look at this. In the middle of the week, three and a half years in to the seven-year final week, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering, he being Antichrist, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. That one is Antichrist. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So here you've got Daniel predicting the final week. Antichrist will take over. He'll convince the world he's a man of peace. But three and a half years into his rule, where the mark of the beast has been instituted, where you can't buy or sell without the mark on the back of your hand or the forehead. He has brought a, a one-world currency. There is a one-world unity. I even wonder if there will be separate nations. If there are, they'll all be submitted to him as one. He'll walk into the temple, the rebuilt temple, and sit in the Holy of Holies, and he will say, according to the Bible, I am God. And when he says, I am God, the Jewish people freak because they've already been enjoying their temple again and the sacrifices and everything. And now they're going to realize the guy has been a major fraud. We trusted him, but now he's telling us he's God when we worship Jehovah, not him. And when he does that, all hell breaks loose on earth. And you can read about the worst part of it in, in the book of Revelation. Well, we'll deal with this more next time. I know this has been a lot. But everybody say, seven years, 49 years, 60, or seven weeks. I'm sorry. Say with me, seven weeks, 49 years. Say 62 weeks. Four and thirty-four years, and there you're at four hundred and eighty-three. We've got one week left, and it's yet to be fulfilled. It's coming. Let's stand up, can we? How many of you can say that was a lot, but I think I got it? Well, that didn't sound very convincing. You gotta help me. Say that was a lot, but I think I got it. What we need to walk out of here knowing is we have a time. You know, I was talking to Pastor Brian and 
Brendan and Cindy before the service, um, and I said to them, I said, we don't know how long we have before you can't preach anymore. Uh, Jesus said, the night comes when no man can work. Because, folks, I believe we're at nearing the end of the times of the Gentiles, the gospel going to the whole world. And after the times of the Gentiles, the church is taken. And in comes this terrible final week of the tribulation period. And I don't want anybody I know going through that. Amen? So we need to be in prayer and reach as many as we can, as fast as we can, in every way that we can. And that's the resolve of Turning Point Church. That's what we're going to do. Amen? Amen. Let's thank the Lord. Father, we just thank you right now for your blessing on this very uh, complicated but powerful fulfillment of prophecy. We see, Lord, you knew the future centuries and centuries and centuries ahead of time, all the way to the end of time. And Lord, in these final hours of the church age, help us to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.